0: hi everybody jp here want to take a moment to tell you about st john associates they're a great recruiting firm that was recommended to us by one of our listeners they've been around for over 30 years and they match thousands of physicians with practices and healthcare systems across the country they have an experienced team that works in all specialties including neurosurgery and orthopedic spine surgery and they have close connections with employers across the country they will look at your cv They'll match you with practices based on your preferences for geography and lifestyle. And all of this comes at no cost to the physician job applicant. So just visit them at stjohnjobs.com slash nspod to get started with your job search today if you're in the market. Again, that's stjohnjobs.com slash nspod. Following that link will let them know that you found them through us. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, continuing our series on neurosurgery fellowships, today I am just delighted to be joined by Melissa Lopresti. Melissa is currently the Pediatric Neurosurgery Fellow at Lurie Children's Hospital right here in Chicago. Um, We actually met at the end of my rotation there earlier this year at the tail end of the last academic cycle when I was finishing up my rotation at Lurie and Melissa was just getting onboarded and learning her way around the hospital. Um, Melissa was great to work with for the short day that I worked with her, but uh, my co-residents who have been there have really enjoyed uh, being on her service and learned a lot from her. Uh, Melissa, I'm really excited to talk with you today about the fellowship process. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And in retrospect, thank you for guiding me along these hallowed halls of Lurries on my very first day.
0: (laughs) Of course. Uh, Smooth transitions are uh, sometimes rarer than we would like them to be. But uh, from what I heard, everything seemed to have gone well with the change over there. Um, For our listeners who haven't had the pleasure to meet you, why don't you introduce yourself briefly so uh, everyone knows who they're hearing from?
1: Sounds good. Um, I am from New York initially. I grew up in Long Island. And I went to a combined BSMD program called Sophie Davis, uh, where I did my undergrad and my first years of med school together in five years at the City College of New York. And then I transferred to NYU School of Medicine for my clinical years. Um, From there, I matched into neurosurgery residency at Baylor College of Medicine and moved to Houston. And after chief year, I moved on to Chicago to uh, join as the fellow in pediatric neurosurgery at Lurie Children's at Northwestern University.
0: Phenomenal. Uh, we have a great deal of respect for Baylor for the training you get down there. Um, and I, I wonder because part of what I want to talk with you about today, not only digging into the fellowship itself, but for people who are at different points along that path you just laid out, at what point were you interested in doing pediatric neurosurgery? Where along that line did you have that vision for your career?
1: I would say I was probably someone who came to that consensus early on. Actually, when I was starting my combined BSMD program out of high school, I thought I was going to be a pediatrician. So it's always been the patient population I wanted to work with. I love that kind of longitudinal following of a patient and their family, that relationship that you get to build and kind of just being there for them uh, throughout their childhood and early adolescence and on. Um, So for me, uh, pediatrics was kind of always at the forefront. And not until I got to NYU, where I did my general surgery rotation. And um, actually on our neurology rotation, we did several days to a week on neurosurgery uh, and found neurosurgery and pediatric neurosurgery there. Did I really start thinking about pediatric neurosurgery as a path for me? Uh, And then I would say mentorship was really pivotal uh, in that decision-making process for me, both with my mentors at NYU, uh, who at the time was Dr. Howard Weiner, who actually now is at Texas Children's and maintained being a mentor for me throughout residency, uh, and then Dr. Jeff Wissoff, who um, I met at my time is at NYU as well. And then also during, uh, during residency at Texas Children's with um, Sandy Lamb and the team down at uh, Texas Children's. Uh, and now I'm here with Dr. Sandy Lamb again uh, in fellowship. So for me, it's been a medley of interest, uh, um, timing, uh, mentorship, uh, and just kind of opportunity based on where I've had my path so far.
0: It is phenomenal. And it, it's so funny. We always talk about how neurosurgery is a small community and everyone knows everyone. But then the silos within that, you know, pediatric neurosurgery is an even smaller community within that. Um, for our listeners, if anyone missed it, we actually had Dr. Lamb on the show talking about some of her global work in neurosurgery, uh, episode 94. If you want to go back, I think that was a, a great conversation with her, I was privileged to have. Um, but Melissa, it, it's really interesting to me. Um, how early you had that interest. I, I don't think there's data on this. Maybe I just haven't seen it. But informally, being the curious, maybe nosy person that I am, I always ask people the, the same set of questions when I meet them, depending on who I'm talking to. And I think 80%, maybe 90% of the pediatric neurosurgeons I've asked, that's obviously a small sample, have all told me they knew they wanted to work with kids first. And then later, whatever spurred them into neurosurgery and and being a surgeon came after knowing that they wanted to be in the pediatric space. And and that's so interesting to me because I think the the great divides along the medical school pathway and choosing what kind of doctor you're going to be, medical or surgical, and then adult and pediatric. And for some reason, maybe it's just the people I've met, but the pediatric neurosurgeons I meet always say, I knew I wanted to work with kids and then later figured out I wanted to be a surgeon and this kind of surgeon. Whereas I think most people within general neurosurgery that you talk to would say, I knew I wanted to be a surgeon. And then I found out it wanted to be, you know, I wanted to work on the nervous system and work with these patients. Has that been your experience? I mean, do you talk about these kinds of things with people?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. I, you know, maybe I should include that question in, you know, my getting to know questions about people. But (laughs) uh, from the Few people that I have had this conversation with, I think many of us have kind of made that decision early, maybe not quite as early as medical school, but I think early on in residency. Uh, I remember at Baylor, you know, intern year, we are already having kind of mentorship meetings about where do you see your career headed? What do you want to spend your research years doing? And for me, you know, I think we're shaped by our experiences and we're shaped by our mentorship. Um, especially in my case. And having gone to Sophie Davis, which is a school that really works um, in the community for the community, focusing on community health, um, social medicine, population health, I always had an interest in public health. When I went to NYU, I had an interest in health disparities uh, and did a concentration on that. So I knew early on intern year, I wanted to go to uh, MPH school during my research years. And I wanted to kind of intertwine my interests in pediatric neurosurgery and public health. And I don't think that that's necessarily a traditional pathway for most neurosurgeons, uh, but definitely something that my program was open to. Um, And I think being in a place that kind of fosters that was really interesting to me and being able to kind of blend my interests um, and kind of talk about them openly from intern year on uh, and be, you know, kind of work with mentors to achieve those goals, I think was really, you know, Instrumental.
0: Yeah, what a, what a blessing to have a clear vision of what you want to do with your life, and then hats off to you for successfully executing on that each step of the way. You know, it's, it's some people don't know early on, and and yeah. so that's just a, a game of luck if you know exactly what you want to do. But whether or not you have that clear vision, um, you still have to execute on it, and you still have to successfully check all the boxes along that way. So that that clearly takes not only the vision, but the drive to follow through on it. So hats off to you. Um, I do want to focus obviously on the fellowship process, but I don't want to ignore the fact that we are in residency interview season right now. So I wonder as someone who knew what you wanted to do so early and knew that you wanted to be in the pediatric sphere, going into neurosurgery residency, how much did you talk about that during interviews? Um, You know, on the other side of things, it can, I guess people get mixed messages on you should be very forthright and, you know, represent yourself accurately. But on the other hand, you don't want to pigeonhole yourself and come out of the gate strong like, oh, I want to be peds and that might turn some departments off or, oh, no, I just want to do spine, spine, spine. And if you have a very cranial heavy program, that might turn them off. Uh, What was your approach when you were interviewing for residency as someone who so fully knew you wanted to go into pediatrics eventually?
1: Yeah, no, that's an interesting question because, I mean, A, you're trying to match into a competitive residency. Um, B, you're trying to not only match, but also match to a place where you think you're going to get the best training for you. Um, And I think part of that is being honest with yourself and what you want, and then also honest with the places that you're looking at because um, you want to get the most out of training. The way I approached residency application was, um, you know, I want to apply once and match to an awesome place where I will get an awesome education. Um, And for me, based on my medical school experience, I really liked those places that had uh, multiple different institutions that I worked at, um, Mm. public hospital, a private hospital, a VA hospital. So a lot of the places that I interviewed at that had a similar structure um, were places that I wound up having high on my rank list. Uh, And in addition to that, places that had standalone children's hospitals with a robust pediatric neurosurgery experience. And I'd say, you know, it's a long process, residency interviews and applications. And my thought process evolved in that interval. Uh, What I wanted evolved over time once I really figured out what the different program structures were. Because for me, you know, I don't have a legacy history in my family of, you know, neurosurgeons or even doctors. Um... So for me, I was really the first person kind of going through this in my family and knowing um, what else is out there is not something that I knew uh, until I kind of looked into it. So um, I think really kind of learning along the way about what's out there, what you like, and what um, works for you is really important in helping shape your decision.
0: Hmm. So let's talk a bit about that process now that I have filled the air with all of this preamble. Let's talk about approaching and the steps toward applying into a pediatric fellowship. Obviously, as we've discussed, you knew early on, and I'm sure you were laying your groundwork early, but um, maybe you could paint a picture for the generic resident who perhaps has some interest, but most of us do our peds rotation around PGY3, a little bit before mid-residency, and let's say they get bit by the bug and they, ooh, golly, I, I love this experience. I want to work with children. I love the the atmosphere and the environment. Um, what's a general timeline for when people start reaching out to fellowships and uh, talking with mentors? And obviously, again, there's the match process. What's the timeline for all of that logistically during residency?
1: Yeah. Well, first, I want to thank you for kind of asking these questions and putting this out there for those who are listening, because Um, As someone who came from a program where it had been a little while um, since someone had gone into PEDS, uh, I kind of felt like I wasn't sure of the process myself. Um, So Mm. I learned a lot about the way and obviously had mentors to ask these questions to. Um, But I would say, you know, the first step is to go into residency with an open mind, no matter whether or not you have an idea of what it is that you might want to do. Aim to become the best surgeon that you can be. Uh, You owe it to yourself. You owe it to your patients. So I think really approaching every rotation is trying to learn the most uh, and learn the disease processes that you're treating. It will help you in your career no matter what you do, Um, whether that's peds or spine or, you know, open skull base surgery, all those sorts of things. So um, that would be my first recommendation. Then I think once you identify your interest, um... Spend time with those people, whether it's on research projects, going to clinic, um, who has the job that you want to have one day? Talk to them. How did they get there? Um, What is their advice about the process? What resources do they know about? Um, Based on that, uh, I got involved in research and was fortunate enough to go to the ped section. And I tried to go to the ped section um, every winter that I could. Uh, Isn't always feasible. But it's really great to meet with the like-minded people to, you know, see other contemporaries in your field, learn from the greats, um, and networking. Uh, it is a small field, as you said before. So getting to know the people that are in the field that you'll be working with, I think is really instrumental. Um, and then from there, uh, you kind of learn about the different programs. Uh, I would say that um, pediatric fellowship and neurosurgery is the only, um, like, required fellowship to become board certified in pediatric neurosurgery. Um, To my knowledge, the other fellowships are not such a formalized process through the SF match um, and requiring uh, accreditation from a board um, certification standpoint. Um, I would say that it's also a later process. Many other fellowships that my colleagues in residency were applying for was PGY four through six year. Uh, The peds match is later in the game. You really apply at the end of sixth year beginning of seventh year. Uh, You interview anywhere from August to November of chief year, and then um, you match in December of your chief year. And then six months later, you're moving somewhere for your fellowship. So um, it's definitely later, uh, and it's definitely a more standardized, structured process um, than it may be for other fellowships that residents might be considering.
0: Yeah, it it is as you point out, such a unique uh, process within neurosurgery postgraduate training. Um, not only the requirement side of things, but also just the the process itself of how you get to the fellowship. So, I, I wonder now that you're in your fellowship. Um, I think one of the most common questions anyone doing a fellowship gets asked is, "What are you looking for out of it? What are you getting out of it?" And For most people, they could say, well, I'm seeing techniques I didn't get during residency or I want an academic job, so I'm I'm trying to get within the network and have someone to recommend me, et et cetera, and have those qualifications, et cetera. But within the world of the pediatrics fellowship, your simple answer could be, I want to be a pediatric neurosurgeon. And that could be the end of it because you have to do the fellowship to have the job you want. But clearly, there's much more to trying to pick where you wind up in the match and the things that you're looking for during this year of your life, besides just checking the box for employment status. So <laughs> now that you're in it, um, what do you find that you're picking up? Maybe that you didn't expect to pick up. I, I know that when we rotate uh, in in pediatric uh, hospitals, it's very limited in terms of the hands-on surgical experience. Everybody's more careful. Tissues are more delicate. So are you getting a degree of operative experience that you didn't get during residency? Are you getting some insights into running the practice? What, what are the biggest takeaways you're getting from this year so far?
1: That's a great question. Um, and I would say uh, that every fellowship is very different from how it's structured, how your call will be, really what role you'll play on the team. Uh, And I think you know determining what's best for you is really, it's pivotal to kind of understand what training you've had so far and what your goal is for the year. So um, for me, for example, I went to a very busy residency. We're very clinically busy. We had five different hospitals that we worked at. We had a huge children's hospital with many faculty that we learned from. So I had a really robust experience. Um I wanted to go to a fellowship where I had um true fellow call where um I was treated as a you know backup to the residents um almost like a pseudo attending with the possibility of attending privileges but not quite you know in the attending call pool so that I could benefit from the you know learning kind of the fine nuances of the complex cases that the attendings were scheduling um not burdened by, you know, being on primary attending call um, and missing out on some of those opportunities due to emergencies that might come in. Uh, And really in a place that was flexible uh, for me in terms of building, you know, my academic portfolio, my research portfolio, and really my, you know, networking portfolio. I think, I think mentorship is very key. And being in a place that allows you that professional development Uh, was something that I really prioritized uh, when looking at fellowship.
0: That's really interesting. Um, I I think your point is well taken that every fellowship is going to be different, um, much as every residency is different. And the place where you wind up can have significant impact in the amount of time you have to devote to these things versus your clinical responsibilities. What is the process like going through this match? Because we all went through the residency match, and I can imagine that it's obviously a smaller pool. There are fewer applicants. There's fewer spots being competed for. But um, in general, how many places do prospective fellows apply to? How many interviews do you do? And, and what's the, the ranking process like? So many of us will never go through a, a match process after residency graduation. I'm, I'm curious what this one felt like.
1: Yeah, I would say it has a lot of the same stresses as residents. <laughs> um, you know, you kind of put your hat and your name into a hat and hope it winds up where you want it to. Um, but I would say that it, like you said, it's on smaller scale. I think there's 30 to 35 um, accredited pediatric fellowships um, all over North America, and they, um, like I said, have varying structures and uh, have been. Some are, you know storied in terms of how many fellows they've graduated, some are newer. Um, so I think crafting your list of where you're going to apply is very self-driven. Some people consider geography, some people consider, um, you know, storied reputations of programs, some people consider opportunities at those places or program structure, mentorship, um, professional development. Um So I think from the people I've spoken to, most people apply to, you know, anywhere from five to 15 places. Mm. I think, um, there's a couple of things that affect that. One of which is whether or not the interviews will be in person or on zoom, um, time away from chief year is hard to sacrifice. Those cases are amazing. And, you know, uh, missing time on clinical service is sometimes challenging as a chief, um, to miss call and things like that. I think, um, I think that is a limitation. And also, you know, obviously the financial constraints of going on uh, in person interviews um, in terms of time off. And then also in terms of, you know, the same kind of constraints that residents have uh, in terms of booking flights and all those sorts of things. So for me, the process was kind of half and half. Uh, At the beginning of the interview season, things were in person and then it switched midway through to being on Zoom. Um, So, and I think this year everything was on Zoom for those that applied. Um, so, um, I'd say that, you know, in terms of that, it can be variable.
0: Okay. Um, this is something I noticed during my, uh, rotation there at Lurie, which, which I imagine has got to be somewhat consistent across pediatric neurosurgery divisions. Unlike the, uh, general neurosurgical department at most academic centers, who have a full cohort of residents and the attendings have a seven-year relationship with the residents who become their chiefs, the pediatric division typically gets a rotation of, again, maybe third or fourth year residents who come for a few months and then leave. So the pediatric neurosurgeons always have residents around on their service, but they don't have that longitudinal relationship with one person who grows and learns under them, learns their preferences and learns to run their service. Similarly, and this is true of any fellow, you're coming in fully graduated, but uh, a guest in their home. You you haven't been with them for seven years. You don't know their preferences. They don't know your foibles. You have to learn each other's languages, so to speak. So what is it like learning to work with someone, gaining someone's trust immediately a, as a new surgeon working in their department, but B, with someone who may not be used to having a senior, fully trained uh, learner uh, on whom they can thoroughly rely.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, for residency, for seven years, you built trust. Um, and, you know, you've worked with the same people for all seven years. They saw you at your worst, they saw you at your best, they've seen you learn. Uh, and by the end of those seven years, that trust is really solid. And if you know you've used your clinical judgment to assume that something needs to be treated with surgery, um, oftentimes they you know they trust you with that. And uh, I would say building trust is not something that happens right away. It's something that is a process and is different for each person. I was fortunate to come to a fellowship where I already had a relationship with um, my fellowship director. Uh, based on having worked with her in residency. Hmm. So I would say that the trust there was already built. Um, so I, um, I was able to, you know, kind of build on that further. Uh, and you're also the fellow that has met these faculty and has graduated a residency. So I would say that the trust in the fellow is certainly a different type of trust than the trust in the residents. Um initially, just because you've already passed that roadblock of residency. Um, And you're viewed as a team leader, not just as another cog in the wheel. Um, You are someone who coordinates the service, who, you know, runs rounds every day, lays eyes on, you know, all of the kids on service, especially those that are sick, uh, and uses your judgment to kind of communicate acuity of things to the faculty. So I would say that that process, while it's not immediate, certainly ramps up quite quickly. Um, and at least the fellowship I'm in really feels like a partnership when we're operating together, uh, in terms of how we orient the scope, um, operate operating simultaneously to, uh, to minimize, you know, surgery time, blood loss, um, all those sorts of considerations that you have in very small children, uh, that matter time under anesthesia, um, that I think we're a little bit more conscious of compared to uh, perhaps on the adult side.
0: Hmm. Well, Melissa, as, as we, uh, as we bring this conversation to a close, I, I wonder if I could ask you to talk a bit about your interest and in your work in public health. I I've said before, I think I talked about it with Dr. Lamb. It seems like pediatric neurosurgery is the most involved and the most aggressive, you could say, uh, subdiscipline within neurosurgery when it comes to public health, global work, um charitable work, and you know y- you could fall back on the stereotype and just say that pediatric neurosurgeons are nicer and they care more about other people, or you could theorize that perhaps um, the diseases that afflict pediatric neurosurgical patients are better addressed with public health initiatives, and the global need is greater, so maybe you could talk a bit about maybe your theory for why pediatric neurosurgeons seem to do so much more global work and public health work and have that mindset, but then also make the case for why people should get involved and why people should uh, think more in that space of things.
1: For sure. For sure. Uh, I'll, I'll take the side that I think it's multifactorial, not to cast shade on my adult neurosurgical colleagues, but um, I think pediatric neurosurgeons are a great group of people. Um, And I think we genuinely care and enjoy those relationships with patients and families. And I think the nature of pediatrics and pediatric diseases is that you follow these children while they grow. Um, And I think that because of that, you have a different degree of investment um, in outcomes. And you take a chronic disease like spina bifida and you see the evolution in a child's life into adulthood and the difficulties in transitioning care from you know, pediatric tertiary hospitals to the adult side of things where, um, you know, those appointments might not be coordinated and navigating that system might be challenging. Um, And you appreciate that maybe there's things that we can do as a society to help the population on a different level. So um, for me, really, the interest comes from all aspects of medicine. Clinical research, what do we do, what works best, and how do we do it better and more cost efficiently? Um, how do we look at a population's health and determine how we can elevate the health of the whole population to decrease the burden of disease? Um, for example, you know, how does legislation and public health policy impact things like traumatic brain injury, helmet laws, seatbelt laws? These were all made to keep the population safe. And has a huge impact, even the the speed limits in a you know pedestrian community has an impact on the disease that will occur at motor vehicle collisions at you know that reduced speed limit um what's gonna cause a fatality versus what won't um mm-hmm. so I think these are all different things that are important to consider uh for me, my interests are pretty diverse in the realm of public health and pediatric neurosurgery uh like I mentioned um public health policy, um, and then also I would say preventative medicine. Uh, For example, in spina bifida right now, the International Pediatric uh, Neurosurgery Society is really working on promoting folate supplementation um, to reduce the rates of spina bifida worldwide. Uh, I went to the ISPN this winter, uh, and a lot of the talks were about um, folate supplementation and the impact that that has had in pilot trials, uh, and the impact that that could have globally. And mm-hmm. while we might never eradicate bifida, um, if we can reduce those that occur due to a, a preventable supplementation of folate in maternal diets, um, I think that's something that we should try to do. We should try everything we can for these kids um, to try to promote their quality of life. Um, so that's my two cents. Sorry if I'm on a tangent here, but I'm very passionate about the issue, um, and hope others are as well.
0: I couldn't agree more. I, I think anyone who has treated a single patient with spina bifida mmkre two um, could cl- easily see the benefit and the uh, incredible um, cost benefit uh, ratio favoring a mother taking a vitamin uh, versus um, the immense cost, both emotional financial, uh, you know, human resource hours that that goes into the care of a single one of, of those unfortunate children. So couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, but I think one of the best points that you made for our listeners that I just want to underscore is the mentorship and the advice available to people in residency who may be interested in pediatrics. I am especially appreciative for your time, Melissa, coming on, because I think the best person to ask how to do something is someone who just did it successfully. And as you pointed out, everyone can reach out to a pediatric neurosurgeon that may be affiliated with their residency. But if that pediatric neurosurgeon is 5, 15, 25 years out of training, they may not be the best person to ask about the process of getting into the field, even if they're a great mentor on on how to function within the field. So uh, given the fact that You just successfully went through this whole process. I think anyone who's interested in following in your footsteps is going to get a lot out of this episode and your advice about how to approach and successfully enter this field. So, Melissa, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your experiences.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I think it's been really wonderful. And to echo your point, if anyone has any personal questions about how to navigate this or is in need of a mentor, I'm happy to serve in that role. You can find me either through the Lurie's website or on Twitter.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much.
1: Of course. Thank you so much.
0: Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.